I love that it's great singing because we're singing to a great God. He deserves for us to lift up His praises, proclaim His glory, to love Him well. And just by your gathering together today, I hope your hearts are set to worship Him, to submit to Him, to love Him more. I believe that's what God wants to do in our gatherings, that we would love Him more. That's my prayer for you today. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Find your place there with me. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read the first seven verses. Paul, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote these words down to Timothy, and they become instructive for the church throughout all generations. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself... Pages of my Bible are sticking, I apologize who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. You may be seated. Join with me as we pray. Father, we know how much we need you. We read your word and we see that there are instructions given for us that we're not living up to And we pray for your help. May we come to terms with the text of this book and understand it and apply it to where we are today. We fully desire, we wholly long to be the people that you created us to be, to be the church that you designed. And I pray that as we continue reading through this book and studying it, that you would revive your church Let Lawndale again love you more. Let us have a greater respect for your word. Help us to elevate Jesus and let that be the work that we're about, making disciples, making more followers of Christ. Bless our time in your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In this passage, I believe that God gives us some clear instructions on how we're to relate to the government and in politics in general. I understand as we look at some of these passages that some of these topics aren't exactly the ones that we might want to bring up to the front and study up front. There's some difficult issues that are at stake when we talk about the relationship between the church and the state, the church and the government, what we do as the people of God and politics. I, I would say to you that the church at Lawndale is a Baptist church, and I'm, I'm not ashamed to be a Baptist. There are some clear distinctives of what who Baptists are. Now, I believe that denominational affiliation is secondary. I have brothers and sisters from all kinds of different denominations who love Jesus, who love his word. We disagree on some, some different things, so I, I'm not making it a primary issue. I'm just saying that there are some distinctives that normally say this is, this is what it means to be a, a, a Baptist. We, we practiced one of those things just a few moments ago. We believe in believers' baptism. Someone who gets saved, they make it public by identifying with Christ in his church 
through baptism. And you see the association with uh, the name, uh, Baptist and baptism. You see the similarity there. I was going to make this terrible joke, and nobody laughed in the first service, so I'm not going to... Well, our roots start with John the Baptist as Baptist, right? That's the joke. They had definitely not. But there is the association. John came baptizing. That, that's, again, part of the roots of, of a, the Baptist denomination. Our founding fathers came to this land looking for religious freedom. And I would say religious freedom has always been a hallmark of Baptist life. And, and really all those who claim the name of Christ and follow the scriptures. But religious freedom is important to us. It's so important that each one of the statements of faith that Baptists at least Southern Baptists have made over the years, has had a form of a statement about religious freedom within it. The Baptist faith and message that was updated in the year 2000 follows that long line of religious freedom statements. And this is what the Baptist faith and message 2000 that we hold to says about this. Civil government being ordained of God, it is the duty of Christians to render Loyal obedience thereto in all things, not contrary to the revealed will of God. The state has no right to impose penalties for religious opinions of any kind. The state has no right to impose taxes for the support of any form of religion. A free church in a free state is the Christian ideal. And this implies the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men and the right to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of religion without interference by the civil power. Again, I believe this is the heart of the Christian faith. We believe that people have the freedom to choose who they will worship and how they will worship Him. We know that there's one true God and we believe at Lawndale that there's one way to worship Him and that's through Jesus Christ. That's in our text today. But we would fight for the freedom of others to make choices of who they will worship and how they will worship Him. With the founders coming over because of the great persecution I think it was a reminder that what government is to be about is to protect the freedoms that the church exercises, not hinder our freedoms. That's been a major concern for us over the years is when will we lose more religious freedoms? And what we're clearly saying is that our job is to make the gospel known. Our job is to proclaim the gospel. And there's a way that the church can relate to the government and to the nation that will enable that kind of freedom to worship and to serve and to do the work that God has given us. Now, think with me back to when Paul was doing his ministry and Timothy. Paul, again, wrote this letter to Timothy, who was in the city of Ephesus at the time. The Roman Empire was what was the main force in this particular first century. And you can think about a couple of the emperors who would have been reigning during that time. Claudius would have been one of them. Claudius was somewhat bloodthirsty. He loved the gladiator games. He improved that theater so that more people could engage in that kind of battle. And you see a total disregard for the value of human life. It was not what God intended and it was not what the church would have been in favor of. Of course, he wasn't quite as much a tyrant as that next emperor, Nero, 
you've probably heard that name bantered about uh, more often. But he was such a, a, a tyrant and a dictator that he didn't like even what his mother was saying. And he had her put to death. Uh, he expanded that theater and he was very much supportive, not only of that theater that was in Ephesus, but a temple of worship to the goddess Artemis. And of course, many people in Ephesus made their money from that temple worship. And Paul was uh, in a lot of trouble because he helped deliver someone who was in bondage to that false religion. And so when you go back and read in Acts 18 and 19 and Paul's ministry in Ephesus, you see the red carpet wasn't rolled out for him to preach the gospel. He faced much persecution and many obstacles in doing the work that God had given him. And so that's where we find this text being written. I think that's instructive. When we know the historical background, we know the context of what is happening here. Paul first tells Timothy that for the church, they're to be guardians of the truth, chapter 1. What a great theme that we can't settle or compromise. We have to stay true to the Word of God. And then as he begins to move into chapter 2, he's, he's moving more toward leadership. How the church should be led. What should be important for the church? What are the priorities of the church? What are we looking for as far as qualifications in the leadership of the church, chapters 2 and 3. So when we pick up in chapter 2 in verse 1, he's beginning to talk about, okay, now what does that mean for you in the church? What's, what's the important priority for you? And he says it like this, first of all, this is what the church should be known for. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. The church is to be a people of prayer. One of the reasons that the church is not flourishing like it should, and I'm not talking about Lawndale in particular, I'm talking about the church in general across our world, is that we have lost the discipline of prayer. Oftentimes people come into the faith and we welcome them and they place their faith in Christ and then we never teach them to work through the discipline of learning how to pray and engage in prayer, being persistent in prayer and being regular and habitual in prayer. Because oftentimes what happens is that prayer is first a duty that we learn how to offer, that we learn how to experience. We have to discipline ourselves Probably the one thing that we see the less results from immediately is our prayers. You can read the Bible and at least you're picking up some knowledge, right? You can witness to somebody and they can say yes or no. You, you see some immediate things. But oftentimes prayers are labor of love that there are no immediate results. You might not ever see some of the results of what you are praying about. And yet God is saying to his people, first of all, and he's, he's coming at it from a prayer. So if we don't have people, individuals in the body of Christ who are learning to pray, how much less would we be a people of prayer when we gather together? I would say prayerlessness is one of the greatest sins of the church. Jesus, when he talked about when people gather together, do you know what he called that gathering we're, we're, we're bridging the Old Testament from the New Testament when Jesus is there in the temple. I get that. But these people were engaging in so many things that were less important. As a matter of fact, they were abusing the system, the religious system of their day. And Jesus said to them, my house will be called 
a house of prayer. No wonder Paul starts there in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy when he's trying to describe what the church ought to be like, what it should be doing, what it should believe. He says, first of all, the church is to be a people of prayer. Have you moved yet from the duty to the delight of your prayer life? It's one of the things I love about being around some older saints is because if they've been growing in their faith, they've moved from, oh man, i got to pray today, to man, I, got, I get to pray. I get to live a life of prayer because... You, you do have to discipline yourself. It's, it's a little bit like if you want to get in shape. You can't say, I, I want to get in shape and never do anything about it. You have to start. And at first, it's even painful. So I want to lose a few pounds. Well, you've got to eat a little less, most likely, to lose a few pounds. I mean, you've, got to, you've got to go through some painful discipline. And Paul talks about that in the Christian life. I beat my body to bring it under control. In other words, I sacrifice. I give up some things. I don't always do what I want so that I can have that kind of self-control to live for the glory of God. And in that sense, in prayer, oftentimes an older person has walked with God long enough and developed their prayer lives enough that they just live a life of prayer. It's a constant communion with God. They've moved from, from duty to delight. I mentioned Jonathan Edwards a couple of Sundays ago, and he wrote a lot about revival and religious affections and distinguishing marks of what a revival would look like. But he also was connected to another young man. One of his daughters actually married this young man, and both of them died at an early age. But he was a missionary to the Native Americans. His name was David Brainerd. And Jonathan Edwards, this academic elite, was very much connected to David Brainerd and David Brainerd wrote journals most every day. And most of his journals had to do with his prayer life. And then he talks about the duties of the day. Isn't that interesting? But this man had learned that prayer wasn't just a duty. And if you go back and read any of his journals, and Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote and, and uh, published David Brainerd's journals. I, I, I commend them to you. But I, I just pulled one entry from April 18th, pretty close to the day that... Uh, we're in, you know, we're just into May, but 1742. Listen to this young man in his 20s, what he was saying about his prayer life. In the afternoon, God was with me of a truth. Oh, it was blessed company indeed. God enabled me so to agonize in prayer that I was quite wet with perspiration. My soul was drawn out very much for the world, for multitudes of souls. I enjoyed great sweetness and communion with my dear Savior. Have you moved there yet? Every day, even for a mature believer, isn't always there. Some days we even start and, we're, and, and it's really hard to even start. And oftentimes God will bring us to a much better place once we discipline ourselves to start. But the idea is that we grow in that relationship with God. And sometimes it's, it's a matter of, of being discipled in what prayer is and learning that it's not just a religious duty. Although there is duty involved it's a relationship. Prayer is a relationship with God. The goal is to be in constant communion. It's to pray without ceasing. And these times we plan to pray are springboards for the rest of the day. I love reading about Daniel, that he would pray in the morning, he'd pray at noontime, and he'd pray in the evening. Now, do you think those were the only times that Daniel prayed? I, I, I firmly believe it's not. But those were, those were planned times. He disciplined himself 
so that it would springboard his relationship relationship throughout the rest of the day. What time have you planned to spend with the Lord in prayer? I'm a big advocate that every one of us can read at least one chapter of the Bible through a book at a time. And I believe God will speak to us as we put ourselves in a position to hear his word. And as we read his word, whether we read one chapter, three chapters, or more, we should always come back, God, what are you trying to say to me through this text today? Maybe even, what's the most important thing that you want me to take away today, God? And then have a conversation with him about what you've read. Talk to him. He's spoken to you now. You speak back to him and have that con- that conversation. Maybe there's a command that he points out that you're reading. and you're, God, I'm not living up to that. Help me to grow and to be that man or to be that woman. Maybe there's a sin that he points out as you're reading. and you say, God, I'm guilty. Forgive me. Help me to be more obedient in that area in my life. But you're having that conversation with him. And the more you grow in that relationship, the more you become a, a closer follower of Christ you draw near to God and God draws near to you and the sweetness of that growing deeper in your relationship with God is what we're after now notice that this idea of prayer is a little bit different from some of the weapons that we tend to choose to operate in the world we typically try to make our own way we tend to try to operate out of some kind of power play or some kind of manipulation way or some type of system from the world to make our points and to try to do something to create change. The greatest thing we can do for our world and particularly our nation and our city is to pray. This should be what we're known for, that we're a house of prayer, we're a people of prayer, that we're seeking God. This is the weapon that we have that the world doesn't have. We too often try to fight with the weapons of the world, and therefore sometimes we overstep our bounds, even in trying to force political issues and become very entangled in the affairs of the world where we end up turning people off from the gospel because we're so politically oriented. There's a great divide among evangelicals today, politically speaking. It's it's not my job to register someone who might be one party into another party. That's not my job as, as a pastor. That's not our job as a church. Now, if we want to help register people so they can vote, fine. If we want to be involved in political, we should. We should be great citizens. But what I'm saying... What are we depending on to change the world? Not only is there just a general political divide that's dividing our church today, but there's a generational divide politically. Have you really thought about it? Oftentimes we have an older generation who has seen some of the things that we've lost and we say we're not going to lose anymore and and if we're not careful we can lean into the world's way of doing things to try to accomplish our purposes. It's not because we've done something wrong politically that we're where we are I would say it's because the church has not done what it should prayerfully that we are where we are we should be a people of prayer and so oftentimes our older generation sees what we've lost and so they can if not careful get entangled in the affairs of this world and become so entrenched in a political system as churches that that's what we're known for May it never be that Lawndale is known for a political party. May it be known that we're serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That we have a message far greater than the world's. 
You see, on the other side of that, we have a younger generation who says, well, we're, we're tired of all the political stuff, and we don't even want to engage in that at all, and we don't even care uh, what we vote or who we vote for, and that's not right either. We should be engaged and connected and be good citizens. But you see what's happening, even in our own churches, we're, we're so divided on this, that how in the world can we move forward? I'm calling you out today, Delondale. Don't let that happen to us. That's, that's, you don't read that anywhere in this letter to 1 Timothy. You don't read it anywhere in his second letter to Timothy. And you don't, write it, you don't read it in Titus. As a matter of fact, nowhere in the New Testament are you going to see that we should be a national force for political change. We are a spiritual force for Jesus Christ. And our job is to make disciples. So he says to us again, as a church, what are we to to do? Well, we're to pray. A.W. Tozer, I think, hits us pretty hard when we start talking about revival. He said to desire revival and at the same time to neglect personal prayer and devotion is to wish one and walk another. God, change our nation should be our prayer. How do we bring that about? Well, it's through that prayer. If we're not praying, how do we expect for there ever to be revival? So the church is to pray. It's a relationship. We abide closely with Him. How does the church do this? Well, He gives us four words to describe prayer. Sometimes when Paul gives lists or we find lists in the Bible, it's just meant to emphasize one thing. And so the emphasis is on prayer, but there are four different words that I think have different meanings to them. So supplications are the specific request. Day by day, moment by moment, when something pops up, how how are you doing with that? You, You meet some obstacle in your way, you have a problem in your life. Are you offering supplications for those as you go? Or are you taking them on yourself and you're worrying yourself to death and you're getting ulcers and your hair's falling? I mean, you got, you got all these things that can happen when you take them on yourself as opposed to cast all your burdens on the Lord. I love that. Uh, my wife and I had our grandkids this weekend, uh, several of them, and so we had a verse for the weekend. It was Psalm fifty-five, twenty-two: Cast all of your burdens on the Lord, and he will sustain you. Why are you guys laughing about that? <laughs> we are a little bit tired this morning, I will confess, <laughs> but it was wonderful. But that was our verse, and you know, at first I said, what, is, what, is, what happens when we cast our burdens on the Lord? I said, well, he'll, he'll get rid of them, he'll take them away, and no, that's not what the text says, is it? He will sustain you. He'll help you through whatever you face. Supplications, we, instead of worrying, instead of uh, staying focused on our shirt, we, we offer these supplications, these specific requests that come to mind as we meet them, and then we offer prayers. Prayers is a word in general talking about that relationship with God, talking to Him, having that conversation with Him. It's ongoing as we go throughout the day. And then intercessions, that's when we begin to pray for others. I wonder how many people God's not working in their lives because we're not praying. You have not because you ask not. Maybe you've been trying to change your spouse for all these years and you've been working hard at it. Some of you are doing a terrible job, by the way. Why not pray for them? Some of you are, are really worried about your kids or your grandkids. Pray for them. 
You may be the only person that God has in their lives that are really interceding for them. You're coming to God on their behalf. You're offering requests. And there's some people that maybe you don't like. What are you to do? Well, you probably should curse them and be mean to them. And, but that would be the opposite of what the Bible says. Blessed, don't curse. Pray for them. Jesus said it specifically. And there's something about when you begin to pray for people, how that changes your heart toward them at work or at home, or whoever that person might be. Intercede for others. God, God's called us for this. this is, this is a life of, of supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and even thanksgivings. As you go throughout the day, how grateful are you for the way that God's blessed you? When you get up, God, thanks for a, thank you for a, another night of rest and for a new day before me. Are you thanking God for the clothes that you have to put on and the house that you're living in and the the spouse that you may be waking up to or the kids that are in those rooms or the memories of some of those things that have been a blessing in your life? Are you thanking Him for the job? are, Are you going through life, though, if it's not thankful, is it complaining and looking at what you don't have? God, you know, if I could just have this, I'd be happy. And that thing never makes you happy be grateful give thanks in all things god wants that to be a lifestyle so what paul is trying to say is this should be a part of your individual lives but even more so this should be a part of our corporate lives this is what he means that we would be a a church that prays a house of prayer and it's laid out very specifically for us so who does the church do this for well all people Because we want all people to be saved and be right in the center of God's will. Elizabeth Elliot, her husband was a missionary, Jim. He was martyred serving the Aka Indians. And she went back and actually continued to work and did a lot of writing out of some of those experiences. But this is one thing she wrote about prayer. Prayer lays hold of God's plan and becomes the link between His will and its accomplishment on earth. Don't underestimate what God does through prayer. Maybe you've not prayed enough to really see what God does. In your own life, when you pray, the growth from duty to delight, but maybe even around the people that you contact and that you relate to, God bridges that gap through prayer. What what is He not doing because you are not asking? Pray for all people. Why does the church do it? Well, look down in verses 3 and 4. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. God is, cons- God is working in the world. And He wants us as His people to be a part of that. Our joy is to be co-laborers with Him. And the greatest way we co-labor is to be people of prayer. It's good. It's the right thing to do. It's pleasing in Him. It's pleasing to Him. It's why He put us here on earth to relate to Him and to depend on Him. And instead of depending on the things of the world, when you look back in verse 2, we begin to see another element of this. Not only is the church to be a people of prayer, but the government is to be in our prayers. Did you see that in verse 2? For kings, we're praying for everybody, all those that God gives us influence, all those that he knows, that that tells me that my prayer list will never end. I, I will never run out of things to pray for if I'm praying for all the people that God's put around me and in my life and that I know. And then he says specifically, for kings and all who are in high positions. 
Now, we've talked about a couple of emperors. They weren't necessarily kings, but they were people who were ruling the world in the first century, Claudius and Nero. We can talk about people who aren't necessarily kings, but they've been presidents of the United States. Bush 1, let's just go back a little bit. Clinton, Bush 2, Obama, Trump, Biden. Now, when I read those names, or at least listed those names, some of you may have had good and bad thoughts. Some of you may have had all bad thoughts. I, I don't know how you feel about these particular men. But God said pray for them. That's our job. It's not to hate on them. It's, it's not to, to stir up trouble about them in the places that we are. Maybe you've become so enthralled in political things that that's all you're known for where you work. Or that's all that gets talked about around your house. Or that becomes topic of conversation even in life journey groups and small groups. That's, that's not what we're about. Now, we pray for them, but how are we relating to the government? Our, our biggest weapon to accomplish the work of God is to pray for the king, those who are in high leadership, but all those in high positions. We pray for our president, we pray for our vice president, we pray for our governor, we pray for our mayors, we pray for our city council, we pray for our police chief, we pray for our police officers, we pray for the military. All of those are places that God has put people to provide protection and leadership. President Biden isn't in office because there was a miscount or a problem with the machines. He's in office because God put him there. And every president beforehand, God put them there. You may or may not like any given president, but I want you to hear only people... God, God puts every person in place of leadership that's in leadership. Whether they're leading for Him or whether they're not leading for Him. There's something to be said for us today to look at those in high position and, and pray for them and love them. Now, sometimes God calls... Christians, followers of Christ to serve in some of these places. I, I, I'm so proud of the police officers that are a part of Lawndale. Godly men and women who protect our city and who do what's right. And, and we want to pray for all of our police officers. I'm so thankful for people who serve in the military, especially those men and women who actually came out of Lawndale God puts his people in all kinds of leadership places and a part of our government and a part of the world system to be lights and to help carry out the work that God gave for the government. I, I'm not anti-government. I'm just pro the church doing the work of the church. And when we let politics become the rule of the day and we become so enamored even with our own nation as opposed to the word of God and God himself... We're going to end up in places that aren't healthy, that aren't biblical, and we're going to be divided as a church family. There's never been a day when I, in my, in my lifetime, I've never seen the church more divided than it is today. Now, some of you may have seen things I haven't seen. You may be a little older than I am, and maybe I'm missing something. But there's so much to divide the church today. How in the world will we let politics divide us? How in the world would we say, because you didn't vote this way or you didn't think like I did on that, you know what, you're, you're out of my circle and I'm mad with you and I'm not going to treat you well. That's, that's ludicrous. Where, where do you find that in Scripture to treat your brothers and sisters like that because they think 
different politically from you. I do not see that in the scriptures. And I challenge you to come and to find something differently. Look at what John MacArthur said about this. The request for kings and all who are in authority is not limited to just a petition that they would be wise and just. We want them to be wise and just, but that they would repent of their sins and believe the gospel for the sake of their eternal souls. If the church today took the time and energy it spends on political maneuvering and lobbying and poured them into intercessory prayer, we might see a profound impact on our nation. Men and women, I'm concerned about our nation but I'm more concerned about the work of God and the souls of people. I I don't know what's going to become of our nation. I love it. I'm thankful that God allowed me to be born in a free country. Opportunities abound. I'm so thankful. Even through some of the worst years of our nation's life, God's brought us through so much. I'm not anti-American. I'm pro But I want to say to you that whether you are from America or you're from India or you're from Korea or you're from Cameroon or wherever you're from, the greater message for us is the kingdom of God, not a national movement. Do I want God to bring revival to America? Of course I do. Do I want revival to spread throughout the world? Of course I do. But when I stand at the throne room of God... The American flag's not going to be flying. They're going to be people from all nations and tribes and kindred. You see, that's what we're interested in. People of all ages, people of all ethnicities, people from all over the world coming to Christ. And when we get caught up in these divisive things, it keeps us from our main mission of making disciples. And so Paul rightly tells Tim, this is your focus. Pray. Pray for the government. We have different weapons than the world. And the church is weaker when it chooses the weapons of the world. We depend on God and not our government for the mission. Let me clarify a couple of words real quickly. Government. What is the government? Well, it's a group of people, group of leaders that lead a group of people or a geographic area. There's nothing inherently wrong. As a matter of fact, God ordained government. That's why I say no leader is in place other than God put them in place. However they're there, God allowed it. God brought, he is sovereign over all of that. Government is God's idea. It's in scripture. It's not a a bad thing in and of itself. Well, what about the word politics? Now, politics isn't bad in and of itself. It's defined as the art or science of government. I had a couple of kids who went to school majoring in political science. There, there's a place to get involved, but the church isn't the place to carry out our, our politics, nor is it the place to be political. That's a different word. And I know we're starting to get into some gray area, and man, I, I, I'm sweating up here. Are you sweating out there as I'm talking about all this stuff? But to be political is to get involved in how the government operates, seeking to be influential. Now, I want all of you to be engaged. And I'm going to press you and push you to vote and to do everything that you should do as a Christian living in this nation. 
But I, I'm also going to say as a church, we're, we're not going to be political. We're, we're, we as a church, we're, we're not going after a political party because that next word is what ends up happening where we become very partisan. Partisanship is a strong adherence to a political side or party. We, we shoot ourselves in the foot. We, we are no longer able to do this job. We become isolated. We alienate people through partisan politics if we begin to be pursuers of one party or the other as a church. You know, you can come to Lawndale and you can be a Republican and we're going to say we love you. You can come to Lawndale and you can be a Democrat and we're going to say we love you. Our, our focus is making disciples and we want to reach our community. We want to love the people that God's put around us and we want to make a difference in the world for the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of some political party. So what are the big principles that the Bible does talk about? Well, pray for the government. That's it, right here. I mean, I'm wanting to get to that in verse 2. We're to be praying for kings and all who are in high positions. We're, we're praying for the government. We participate in the government. Mark 12, 17, Jesus, when he was asked, should we pay taxes? Pulled out a coin, Caesar's image, rendered to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's. Do you think Caesar was using all that tax money really like we would have wanted him to? Of course not. Render under the Caesar the things that are Caesar's, render to God the things that are God's. Don't, don't let those two things get so conflated that you're not able to do the work of God. Render to Caesar the things. We should participate. We vote. We support. And, and the third big principle is that we submit to the government. Romans 13, verse 1, gives us some very clear directives I'm going to read a couple of these because they're so helpful. Romans 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Didn't say the good ones and the bad ones, the ones you voted for and the ones you didn't vote for. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And there's a lot more there for you to read. Look over in 1 Peter Chapter 2, not only should we submit to the government, but there's a, a layer that's even more sacrificial. We should honor the government. We should honor those who are in leadership. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 13, listen to this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And there's a lot more there. Uh, even as you look down in verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Those are hard words. I, we're, we're saying honor Trump. Previous, we're saying honor Biden. Those, those, those might be some fighting words for some of you. I, I, I don't know. But what he's trying to say, these are, what do we do with the bigger principles? Sometimes people say, well, well, how should we relate to police officers? Well, these are the big principles. Honor them, respect them, obey them. I mean, they're, they're in positions of authority. We, we teach our kids how to cooperate, how to honor and submit. The world goes a lot better. We, we learn it first at home how to honor and obey our parents. And if we don't learn it at home, we're most likely not going to do it at school. We're not most likely going to do it in public places. We're not most likely to do it in the government scenarios. God meant for there to be submission and honor. And he says, do that with the government. 
and it's not always easy. But what does it do? Well, it provides the best environment for religious freedom. So when you look again at 1 Timothy chapter 2, and you look at verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Don't you like living a peaceful and quiet life? One of the things I love about the fact that we have the kind of government we do, typically we're living peaceful and quiet lives. And when things flare up, we want our leaders to calm it down. That's what they're to do. Because, again, he goes on to say that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I I would say to you that oftentimes we lose our dignity because we get caught up so much in the world. And people begin to see, man, how could they be loving? Man, how could they... They say they follow Christ and here the Bible says to act like this and they're acting completely different and it's all because we've got caught up in some kind of political argument and people at work, they don't see us as a light. They just see us as a political juggernaut of some sort. We pray for our government, we respect, we honor them because it provides the best environment for us to practice and promote the gospel. Let me give you the third point here. The church's first commitment is to God and not the government. Look in verse 5. Now, back in verse 4, he does say, this is what God desires, that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's heart. That's why we're busy about this work. That's, That's the ultimate goal. If people get saved, the churches change, the communities change, the nation changes. But we can enact all the right legislation. We can... Have all these policies that we think are in line with with what we want and still have a lost nation. But the job of the church is to take the gospel. We take the gospel, people's lives are changed, and it affects all of us and it affects all of those people around us. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. In verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. So our first commitment is this one God. The government is not our God. Don't live like the government's your God, that if my party's not in power, or if these people didn't vote like I think they should vote, then they're out of my circle. We have one God. And the government is not God. God created us and God gave us a way to operate in this life. And there's one mediator. There's one way to get to God. There's one way for change to take place and that's through Jesus. The the government's here to protect us so that we can get this message out that there's one way. Verse 5, one mediator. Here we have sinful people who are lost and uh, headed to hell and they're in darkness. And over here's a beautiful, wonderful, majestic God who created these people and there's no way for the people to know God to enjoy him and to glorify him so God the son took on human flesh to bring these two parties together and those who will place their faith in this one mediator is death and resurrection and confess him as Lord they can be made right with this holy perfect God he's a mediator he's a go-between Jesus makes it possible for us to know God and for us to be the people that he created us to be. 
And so we go back to what we tried to do last week, and I had some really good counsel that maybe I should put this up on the screen. Help me out with this statement that was known in the early century back in chapter 1, as this was stated in verse 15. I'll say the first part, you say the second part. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Let's do that one more. That was really good, church. Let's do it again, though. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Do you know that Jesus doesn't save institutions? He saves people. And what is he doing? He's building a church, a bride, that he's going to come back for one day. We should be faithful Wherever he calls us, if he calls us to work in the government, if he calls us to be one of those governing authorities, if he calls us in whatever place that we should be faithful and be a light right where he's planted us and show what following Christ looks like. And as God has saved us and we follow him, it should be a light in our homes. We take this gospel message all over the world. That's where change comes from. That's where revival is going to break out. When churches come back to the one true God and the one mediator between God and man and say, that's where our focus is and will live or die by Jesus that's where the apostles were when you read about the early church they they weren't into the government reform I'm not saying that what they did didn't change government but what I'm saying is their focus was on the message of Christ they didn't discount people because of their affiliation with any political group notice Though their commitment to Jesus in the midst of some very difficult days. Acts 4, verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. These men were willing to die because the message of Jesus was more important than the government that they found themselves in. The leaders, there's a point. We honor and we obey. But when we're being led in a way that's contrary to God, then that's when we I've got to preach Jesus. I'm going to stand true to this book. I'm going to honor and obey as far as my biblical convictions go. And then even in Acts 5, verse 27, you see this same statement being made. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. In our own nation, there may come that time when we're standing on biblical convictions and they may come and arrest. Just north of us in Canada, there are people who are standing on biblical convictions that are being jailed. We stand on biblical convictions. You see, when you tie yourself to the government, you can't do this. You're you're all in. You're tied to a system. You become party to whatever you've bought into and we're saying, you know what? The government's not going to tell us what we can... Pr- we believe in religious freedom. And if they try, we're willing to go to our death. This book, this truth, this one God, this one mediator is worth dying for. He died for us. And there may come a day when we die for him. 
And when you're tied to the government, you're not going to be willing to die for him. It's pretty clear, isn't it, in Scripture, how we're to relate? There's some gray areas, and everybody might not be happy with me when they leave today. But I believe what we've done is we've been faithful to say we have a job to do, church. Don't let the affairs of this world entangle us and keep us from being united and moving forward for the glory of God. Church, your citizenship is in heaven. It's not on earth. As much as I love our nation, and I am a citizen of America, I have a much higher citizenship that's in heaven. Some of you are from different nations of the world who are gathered with us, either in this room or on our live stream. Your loyalty and my loyalty to Jesus as a follower of Christ isn't even close to anything else this world has to offer. A political party or even a national origin. Aren't you glad that it's not? On the good days of our nation and the bad days of our nation, man, I'm following Christ. My hope's not tied to America. I love it. I'm going to do all I can to pray for it and to be a part of the answer of taking the gospel out. My hope's not tied up in this nation. If there's ever a time when our nation turns completely away from God or our nation is overthrown, you know what? I'm still going to serve God because my citizenship is in heaven. Church, I'm asking you, let's live. Let's live and let's minister and let's serve like people who have a citizenship in heaven. Pray with me. Father, we confess that oftentimes in this world we don't know how to live. It's hard because we, we get caught up in the system of the world and thank you for the bearings that we have that we can come back to the scriptures and say our, our loyalty is to Jesus and Jesus alone. I pray that you'll help us as a church that we won't let the politics of the day divide us. That we'll come together generationally, that we will come together regardless of ethnicity, that we'll come together regardless of political affiliation, that we will love Jesus more than anything else, and that we'll take this gospel message to the world. Would you bring revival to Lawndale, that we'll love Jesus more, that we'll love your word more, that we'll love each other more, and that we'll see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand. Lynn and Bonnie are going to lead us in the first verse. We'll join them in the chorus in the following verses. Oh, to Jesus I surrender.